Buddy, let's open our Bibles, please, to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. In my own study and preparation for these sermons from the book of James, as you know, I've been kind of parallel following through a Bible study on the book of James that I wrote years ago. And it just so happens that when I was preaching last week that I stopped at verse 11 and saved verse 12 uh, for this week and As it turns out, when I wrote the study many years ago, I actually did the same thing. So, just an incredible coincidence to me. I don't know why I'm sharing that. That probably doesn't mean anything to you, but it did did to me. But in any case, um, it does mean something because the, the best way to understand this passage that we have before us today is to remember the context of the book. Not the section of the book that we're in and the overall text as a whole. So let me say a prayer and then I've got a little introduction here to read for you and then, uh, and then we'll talk some more. Let us pray, everybody. Dear Father in heaven, Lord God, all people should turn to you. You are God. You are our maker. You are the one who has blessed us with every good thing that we have. You are our savior. You are our protector and sustainer. You are our deliverer. And you are the only one. Like that hymn we sang just now said, perfect submission All is at rest. We're happy and blessed in You. That's where we need to be. We come to You now, Lord God, knowing that we are great recipients of Your grace in that we have been turned to You. And now that even through hardships, we need to remember You and we need to be turning others to You. We need to turn each other to You. We need to turn lost people to You. We ourselves, if we're prone to wander, need to listen when others turn us to You. In all things, all the world should look to You. And I pray that that becomes resoundingly clear in Your Word as we study it today. Thank You, God. In Jesus' name, Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. Having just come reading this, having just completed a section of text concerning enduring hardships, that's very important context, the epistle concludes with three admonishments that seem to be connected with that. First, there can be an inclination to speak rashly, impulsively, or even deceptively when in hard times. James stresses here the importance of avoiding that and of simply being a person who keeps his word. Also in hardship, a person will likely be suffering to various degrees, even to the point of physical sickness sometimes. James encourages prayer here. Prayer by the person suffering prayer for each other, and even calling upon the elders of the church for their prayers. And lastly, hardships can lead to people straying from walking with Christ Jesus. There is a great encouragement here to try to turn people back to that close walk with the Lord. Life is full of hardships. In them... We need the Lord and we need the support and fellowship of His people. Look to the Lord for wisdom and strength, like it said back in chapter 1. 
If you lack wisdom, ask of God. And look to each other for help and comfort and to offer help and to give comfort. We are here to serve the Lord and to magnify His name. Along the way, many hard times must be endured. Remember the Apostle Paul, after he had gone through some of the cities on his first missionary journey and had even been stoned and left out, dragged and left outside one city to die, went back through all of those cities, went in turn to each one of the churches that was formed and said to them, probably with welts and scars and bruises all over his body, what? We must endure many hardships in order to enter the kingdom of God. Along the way, many hard times must be endured. It is good to know that God has provided for us that we might go through them gracefully and that we might even grow along the way. Yes? The encouragement of God's Word is not a skirting of hardships. The encouragement of God's Word is His accompanying presence and strength and wisdom and guidance to go through it in a way that glorifies Him and even causes you to grow. James chapter 5, starting in verse 12. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again and the heaven gave rain and the earth produced its fruit. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. When the book of James opened up, one of the first things that we were told was that If you're in various trials, what? Turn to the Lord. If you lack wisdom, ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach. That's basically how the letter started in chapter 1. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Right? Count it joy when you fall. So there's the theme of the letter is thrown down in the beginning. And then you're told how to go through it. You need wisdom. What do I do? I'm in the middle of this hard time. How should I? Turn to God. Turn to God. And now here we come to the end of the letter. And what are we being told? Same thing. Turn to God. Turn to God. Suffering? Pray. Cheerful? Sing. Sick? Go to the elders of the church and ask them to anoint you with oil. Pray for you trespasses, confess them to each other and pray for each other, right? Again, we're told how to go through things that are hard because we're reminded that while 
our salvation was not obtained through any effort or striving of our own, our walking day by day through this life as we endeavor to serve and glorify God using the gifts and opportunities that He gives us, that is very hard. But still, we are constantly told things like, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Abide in me and I in you. Without me, you can do nothing. We're told things like, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to do for His good pleasure. We're told constantly that you need to work it out, but as you are, God is supplying the strength and working out everything in you. We're told to strive, to agonize, to enter at the narrow gate. And yet at the same time, we're told by Jesus that He's the only way. And it's only through faith in Him. And thus the narrowness is found in that solitary entryway, which is Jesus Himself. And we go day by day through life, and there are hard things that confront us. That's what the previous passage that led up to this, that's what was going on. If you remember, the beginning of chapter 5 spoke to the rich. Remember that, right? That's because when James wrote, a lot of the struggle and the trials and the persecutions that his audience was going through were at the hands of the rich and powerful. It wasn't an arbitrary condemnation of everybody who's rich. And as we said last week, there are instructions in the Bible for the godly and the Christian who are rich and how they ought to conduct themselves. See 1 Timothy chapter 6 to be reminded of that. But the beginning of this chapter would seem to infer that James's audience, Jews who were believers in Jesus, scattered throughout the world, suffered greatly at the hands of the rich and powerful wherever they were. And so James tells them, your condemnation is sure. Weep, howl for your miseries and all these other things that he talked about. And of course, he wasn't writing directly to them. He wrote as if he was speaking directly to them. But he wrote for the benefit of his reader, right? He wrote so that the suffering Christian could see that God is ultimately, in the end, the avenger and the righteousness and justice bringer against all wickedness. Be assured of this, brothers and sisters. Men and women get away with nothing. If you're in Christ, your evil has been paid for when Jesus died on the cross. Hallelujah. If you're not in Christ, you are left to pay for it yourself. But Jesus said there's not one idle word that men will speak that they will not give an account thereof in the day of judgment. And we as Christians all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and the entire world, the lost, the small and the great, will all in one day be raised up before His great white throne to be judged. And when their names are found not to appear in the book of life, they will be cast into the lake of fire. James writes to remind the struggling, suffering Christian who's going through hard times, God's got it all under control. It's not for us to think about so-and-so who does us harm having revenge brought upon them. That belongs entirely to God. The Christian is told, love your enemies, pray for them, forgive them. We gave the example of Christ hanging on the very cross itself and crying out, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's our model. Nevertheless, we can be comforted knowing that in the end, all Justice will happen. It ought to govern our conduct a little bit, honestly. But mostly what it ought to do is give us comfort as we walk with the Lord knowing that He's got everything under control. Then, in the second part of that passage, 
You see the word therefore in verse 7. It's a little review here. He said, therefore, be patient until the coming of the Lord. In other words, because God's got it all under control, and none of these people who oppress you, if they don't repent, are going to escape anything, therefore, you be patient until the Lord comes. That's when everything will be made right. That's when everything will be made right. That's why the prophet who introduced Jesus when he came the first time, quoting from Scripture, said, every hill will be made low and every valley will be made smooth. That's what happens. All the crooked ways will be made straight. That's what happens when the Lord comes. You got a little taste of it when he came the first time. The world's going to get a huge dose of it very suddenly when he comes the second time. And all justice and righteousness will come. So you, so you Christian, you be patient. Just like the farmer waits for his crops, you wait. The harvest is coming. Now, verse 9 told us, don't grumble against each other. Because that's what can happen in hardship. Right? Context, context. The, the, the reason that's said is because when we're in hardship... And the devil knows this. When we're in hardship, we can be inclined to turn on each other. Point out each other's faults. We have this natural inclination to feel good about ourselves when other people are down. Because perhaps in our own minds or even subconsciously, we think we fare well by comparison. Don't grumble against each other, lest you be condemned, is what we were told. We're reminded the judge is standing at the door. Look at the example of the prophets, etc., and so forth, right? Now, when we get to verse 12, which is where I started reading today, it continues on that theme, that theme of speaking, as the whole letter has, to believers who are going through hardships and warning us about unique things that James, just with this great insight that God gave him, can see might be a vulnerability for the believer in Christ. Whether Jewish believers in Christ who are his primary audience or any believer in Christ, including you and I. Here's something that can tend to happen. In our rashness, in our weakness, as we're going through hard times, self-control with our emotions and our mouths can sprout little legs and run away. Note in verse 12 that it starts with three very weight-bearing words. Right? If you do construction, you know what a load-bearing wall is. You don't mess with it because you don't want the house to come crashing down, right? Here are some weight-bearing words. But above all, wow, all the way in chapter 5, we get a but above all. All the things that we said, as important as they were, now we get a but above all. Look at this. My brethren, do not swear. He's not talking about swearing in like one of the modern colloquial ways that we would use it to talk about like cursing or, or using profanity. Though there are other passages in Scripture that tell us not to do that. right? One of the things Colossians tells us to put off is filthy language out of our mouths. But that's not what's here. This idea here is that in, our, in the emotion of a struggle, in the emotion of a battle, there can be perhaps the rash pronouncements of I swear to God. I swear before God. I swear before this. I swear on this that I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. And we start to invoke all sorts of authority that we don't have. And that's the problem with doing that. You might ask yourself, why is that such a big deal? Of all the things to say but above all about, why that? Here's why. Because when we start swearing by things, we're stepping out of the realm of God's authority and taking it on ourselves. I have no right as a person who can't even say that I'm going to have tomorrow. 
I don't even know if I have tomorrow, let alone what's going to happen in it. Why would I be someone who would swear by this, swear by that, swear by him, swear by her? I am taking authority away from a sovereign God. I was just told in the previous chapter what? Or two chapters ago. I was just told that, come you who buy and sell and say you're going to go here for a year and do this and do that, buy, sell, make a profit. No, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. When we say, I swear by this or I swear by that, when talking about our own future, where's God in that? Not on your throne, He isn't. You've kicked Him off and you've put yourself on. Instead, you know what you ought to do? Just say yes and mean it. And just say no and mean it. Words, your mouths, are very important. When you say, I swear by this or swear by that, and then don't do it, what does it say? Lest you fall into judgment. You're already in a difficult situation because it's hard to be a Christian. The last thing, here, here's the bottom line. You know what? If you read between the lines and get it what James is really getting at, you know what he's saying? He's saying you need to maintain your humble faith in God and not lash out in emotional rage. That's good advice for anything in life. You want to be a person who thinks. You want to be a person who acts based on truth. And when you lash out in emotion and say, I swear to God, such and such, because you're struggling and you're in an emotionally strained state and everything else, You're not thinking, you're emoting. And that's not a good way to live. As Christians, above all else, we are people of truth. We are people that understand wisdom. The beginning of the book told us if we lack wisdom, ask of God, who's the author of it all. God who by wisdom formed the heavens and the earth. God who by wisdom formed you. God who has abundant, limitless wisdom and the capacity to deliver it to those who humbly ask Him for it. Says, don't lash out in your rage. Don't lash out in your anger. Don't lash out in your emotion. Humble yourself. Turn to Me. Turn to Me. Wait on Me. And when you do speak, keep it simple. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Jesus added to this. This is James elaborating on something that Jesus said in early in the Sermon on the Mount. Let's turn there. Why not? Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. The person who lets their yes be yes and their no be no is trusting God to deliver them. The person who needs to lash out in rage and in anger is not trusting God. They've reverted to trusting their own strength. And that's not how we're called to live. In Matthew 5.33, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord, which is a quotation from Jeremiah. Um, But I say to you, don't swear at all, neither by heaven, for it's God's throne. I swear by heaven, such and such, I'm going to do this to you. I swear by heaven, I am going to get even with you. we We can get really emotional at times. And even if we don't say it with our mouths, we feel it, think it in our hearts. He's trying to move us away from that. Who are we to swear by heaven? Whose throne is it? Well, Jesus said right there. I say, don't swear by heaven for it's God's throne. Don't even swear by earth. Who, Who here owns the earth? Who in the room here owns the earth? Let me know. Let me know so I can go around swearing by you because it's your planet. Listen, the earth is not only God's, it's His footstool, right? That's what it says. The heavens are God's throne. The earth is His footstool. Nor by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. 
the great king being the anointed one who one day will return and rule forever and ever. I don't swear by Jerusalem. That's Christ's alone. Nor shall you swear by your own head because you can't make one hair white or black. Just let your yes be yes, your no be no. Look at this statement. For whatever is more than these is from who? For whatever is more than just yes and no is from who? Who? Come on, I'm not going to let you off the hook here. Answer me. Who's it from? Satan, the evil one. Right? All of, when we lash out outbursts of rage and emotion and make all these declarations and everything else, we're not following the leading of the Lord. Trust in God. Heaven is His throne. The earth is His footstool. Jerusalem is His earthly throne, the seat of the great King. Trust in God. Put your faith in God. Believe God. That's what it boils down to. You believe Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead, right? Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead? Good. Now go on from that point and every day, day by day, moment by moment, hardship by hardship, struggle by struggle, trust God. Trust Him. Don't lash out in your own emotion and your own devices. Remain calm. Remain at peace. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made. Go to, it's, it's, James is saying in a manner of speaking exactly what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4. Different words, same message. Don't worry about anything. Don't lash out and swear by this or swear by that. Go to God. Turn to God. Pray to Him. Be thankful to Him. Make your requests known to Him. And what Paul says is what? He'll give you peace. Which is the opposite of, I swear by this and swear by that. Exchange your emotional instability for supernatural peace that the world cannot explain. How, how good a deal does that sound like? Any takers? God wonders. Any takers? Here's my offer. Bring me your anxiety and I'll give you my peace. Any takers? That's his offer. James is saying basically the same thing that Paul said there. So, point number one. When going through difficulties and trials, turn to God, trust Him, and simply be a person of your word. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Being loose-tongued, being emotionally tongued, being of the quality that just wants to lash out in anger is something that touches all of us to one degree or another. I am certainly there. I thank God that His Word reminds me that I don't have to go there. What I need to do is simply trust Him. Bridle my tongue, as James says. Guard my heart and my tongue. The world doesn't need to hear everything that I think. Everything that I have to say. The world doesn't need every opinion of mine. The world doesn't need all of my rage to be vented so they can hear it. What I need, and I'm going to go ahead and say what the world needs, is to see Christians who calmly, in self-control, trust God. When you look at someone who needs to lash out in rage at everything that goes wrong, do you see someone who trusts God? Yes or no? Clearly not. When you see someone who even in the midst of hardship and difficult things going on around them is able to remain at peace and be calm and you know that they're one who loves Jesus and they say they love Jesus, you see someone whose walk matches their talk, don't you? May I say to you, 
That's what the world needs. The world is noisy enough. We don't need to add to that. The world needs to see that we trust God. What they need to hear from us, what they need to hear from us is why we trust God. You get it? They need to hear about Jesus. That's why we trust him. We trust God because he sent his son. We trust God because he has told us that he loves us so much that he gave his only begotten son. We trust God because he delivers us by the sacrifice of his son. We trust God because my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And the world needs to see it. And by how we endure hardships, shows it. Second, not just be a person of your word, turning to God, but be a person of prayer. You knew, you knew that eventually any talk of going through hardships was going to yield a healthy dose of encouragement to pray. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. And I submit to you that the idea of singing psalms is identical to the idea of praying. The idea is turning to God. Are you suffering? Turn to God and pray. Are you cheerful? Turn to God and sing psalms of rejoicing and praise and thanksgiving. Is anyone among you sick? Call for the elders of the church, right? Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Down in verse 16, I'll talk about the rest of that in a minute, but it says, confess your trespasses for one another and pray for one another. I wanted to focus on the prayers that are called for here. Do you see that in this passage here, comprehensive prayer is called for. The person who is suffering is told, you, pray. The person who is cheerful is told, you, sing songs. The person who is sick is told, reach out to the elders of the church. The person who is struggling with trespasses is told, go to your brothers and sisters and pray for each other. In the midst of hardship and trial, there should be much prayer happening. We should be ourselves praying for ourselves. We should be praying for our brothers and sisters. We should be calling upon the church, the leadership of the church, to pray. Right? So, what are we talking about? In trials, the first point was to not lash out, but trust God and be a person of your word. The second point is, in trials, be a person of prayer. You yourself, in good or bad, pray, sing psalms, rejoice, cry out, whatever. Turn to God, turn to God, turn to God. If you're sick and it persists, listen, as the passage goes on to say, perhaps even it's a sickness that is the result of some sin in your life. Dicey subject. I understand, but clearly this passage acknowledges, does it not, that sometimes sickness in our life can be, not always is, but can be the result of sin, right? It says, let them pray for him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save the sick, which I mean, which I believe save the sick, save the sick does not mean brings him to salvation. Don't take the word save that way. Save there means it saves him from his sickness. That is, it promotes healing. And the Lord will raise him up and, and, it's a conjunction, it connects the thought, and if he has if, see the if there, that's a big word, if, that means maybe it's, perhaps it's true, perhaps it's not. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Right? So, in that respect, if you're suffering, you should turn to the Lord on your own. 
If you're rejoicing, you should turn to the Lord on your own. If you're sick, you should turn to the Lord by going to the church and calling upon the elders of the church to anoint you with oil and to pray for you. Now, a word about the oil. Let's just be real honest about this passage of Scripture. It doesn't say anything elaborative about the oil. It just says, anoint them with oil and pray for them. Which means, you should anoint them with oil and pray for them. Now, there's all... Yeah, see, that's why I get paid the big bucks, because I think about all this. Now listen, I, we've done that many times here. People have come, and we've anointed people with oil, and we've prayed for them. And you can find some testimonies sitting in this room right now, people who will tell you that God answered the prayers. Is it because there's magic in oil? No. Is there, is there, is there in the passage of Scripture here revealed anything effective about the oil itself? No. Some have taken to think that maybe the oil is like a bomb of some kind, like, like uh, there's curative properties in the oil. Now, don't get crazy. Like, you know, next time I get bronchitis, I'm not going to rub olive oil all over my body and, and you know, hope that it goes away. Is there some website that says you're supposed to do that or something? I don't know. Well, there were no websites back then, right? I don't know. Does WebMD tell you to do that? I don't think so. Look, he just says anoint with oil. And where God doesn't elaborate, we should neither. Just do what it says. Right? Just do what God says in faith. What does faith ultimately do? Begins with an O, ends with a Y. Yes. Faith obeys. Why do I anoint with oil? Because God says so and I believe Him. That's all. Don't try to make any big deal out of it. Yes, I know, God used to to anoint kings with oil. They used to anoint the priests with oil. They used to anoint altars with oil. They used to anoint clothes with oil. There were all sorts of anointings, anointing this and anointing that. This has nothing to do with that. This is not a law. We're simply told to do it. We're not told why. If someone comes to me and says, I'm sick, I'd like the elders of the church to pray for me. I've got my bottle of olive oil sitting in there that I've used many times. And you're going to get anointed with oil. And you're going to be prayed for by me and by elders, maybe other leaders in the church, perhaps in front of the entire congregation, perhaps just in my office. I myself have asked leaders of the church in times past to anoint me and pray for me. And God healed me. God's healed me of some things. Yeah, some of you know that because you've been around long enough. I mean, I have all kinds of weird things that I, that to this day, I, I don't make a big deal out of them. I'm not, you know, my nature is not, I don't go blabbing everything all over the place. But, but you, you, know, you know that, like, you know, I, I've been diagnosed with a tear in the shoulder and was scheduled for surgery, and then it just went away when people prayed for me. Years ago, I had nodules on my vocal cords, and I couldn't talk. And even the doctor himself was like, no idea how that happened. People prayed for me, and I got, and I got my voice back. Some of you remember that, right? Yeah, yeah. We just obey. We just obey and trust. Just obey and trust. When, 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 you know, God didn't make his word a riddle that you need to figure out in some complicated way so that you can sit and wax eloquent theologically about why this means this and why this doesn't mean that and why this can't mean this and why this must be that. How about we just read it and we just believe it and do what it says. God's given us examples of that being what He wants. Is that enough for you? Some people would say no. <laughs> I don't know what else to say to you. Look, all I know is this. The bottom line of all of this is when we're suffering, we need to turn to God. And one of the ways we turn to God is through prayer. I pray. I call upon the elders of the church to pray. I call upon my brothers and my sisters to pray. I make myself available to answer other people's requests to pray. The worst thing about, the most shameful thing about unparticipated in and un attended prayer meetings is that we don't come together and make ourselves available to pray for each other. 
I know it's a modern world and you can text each other or you can post it on social media or whatever. But I'm just crazy enough to think that God desires that we not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And that doesn't mean in group chats with our phones. That means we actually get up and go somewhere and be in the same place at the same time. And we call upon God together and we pray. It is the greatest weakness of every church that I know, including this one. Nobody gets together to pray. Not with any regularity. Now, you can get mad at me. It's okay, I can take that. But listen. Or you could say, you know what? I wonder what it would be like if we did. I wonder what it would be like if when the church calls prayer, I go. I stop making excuses why I don't. Whether they're pseudo-theological ones or just selfish ones. And I go. I'm going to stand in front of God someday and explain, have to explain why I said this or said that or did this or did that and so are you. Look at this admonishment. Look at this admonishment. Someone tell me what I'm missing, please. If you're suffering, let him pray. Cheerful, let him sing psalms. Sick, call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Do you see verse 15? My glasses is weird. No, verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Is there anything bad about any of that? Is there anything to be despised? Is there anything to loathe about any of that? Oh, how I pray sometime in my life, sometime in my ministry, we would be a church that we would be a group of people that rushes together to pray. Like in the old days. Like you read in the book of Acts. They're forbidden. Don't you ever pray in the name of the Lord anymore. You know what they did? They rushed together and they prayed. They shut the doors and they prayed. And they said, Lord, listen to their threats and give us all boldness and that we may speak your word and stretch out your hand with miracles and signs and wonders in the name of the Lord. And you know what it says? God shook the house. Shook the house where they were. And they went out and boldly preached the word of God wherever they went. Same Holy Spirit. Same word of God. Same salvation, same faith, same everything. All it takes is something in here that says, I hear what God's word is saying, and I say yes. Wouldn't you love to be in a prayer meeting someday? And a room is full of this, a room is full of this, and everybody's crying out to the Lord, and all of a sudden the house starts shaking. And we all get filled up in our hearts with joy and passion and power and boldness. And we all go out of here just ready to do what God's called us to do. We're told that in verse 16, confess your trespasses to one another. This is all part of the subject of prayer. Again, the disjointed, modern, technologically driven world we give in has split people up. We think we're more connected than ever. And I am telling you, we are not. 
We think our devices connect us like never before. And I am telling you, these devices and the media that they're used to feed have created more fakery and hypocrisy than the world has ever seen in its history. be a group of people that can physically actually join together and actually talk to each other calmly, humbly about our trespasses. The sin that I struggle with. My faults. And have brothers and sisters who are so on fire for God right there that they will pray for me. That I may be healed that I may be healed, not of physical sickness necessarily, but that I may be healed of the ramifications for my trespasses. And then you know what I'm immediately told after that? Look at this statement. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Do you know what the word effective means? Effective speaks not of skill, like we would say, like he's a very effective communicator, we'd say, because he's very good at it. But what the word effective really means in this context is that it causes something. Cause and effect. An effective prayer is a prayer that is about something that we want to see happen. In other words, we're praying for something to happen. We're praying for something to be done. I'm praying for my brothers and sisters to be healed of their faults and their trespasses. I'm praying for my brothers and sisters to be healed of their sickness. I'm praying for my brothers and sisters to be lifted out of their suffering and their discouragement and despair. I'm praying for my brothers and sisters to find peace and calm and strength and boldness even in the midst of suffering. Effective prayer. Prayed what? Then we're told effective, fervent prayer. The idea of fervency has to do with zeal, passion. It's a word that at its core, listen, it's a word that at its core describes temperature, hot, fervent. There's all sorts of synonyms that if you lump them all together, sincerity, passion, earnest longing, Zeal. But the word that really hits it is hot. It's a weird way to say it. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man. Stop there. Righteous man. We know the Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. So we're not speaking here of people who are absolutely righteous because there is no such person other than Jesus himself. So when he says the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man, there's a couple of ways you can take it, and I'm not going to be presumptuous to assume that I knew exactly what James meant that he wrote it. He could possibly be speaking, when he speaks of a righteous man, just be speaking of any Christian, because we've been justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we may become the righteousness of God in Him. His righteousness has been imputed to us. To be justified means you've been declared righteous. So maybe what he means is just the Christian, the person who's believed in God. But I don't, I don't think so. I don't think James speaks that crypto-theologically. I think when he says righteous man, he's speaking more in a relative sense. Right? He's speaking of the person who is committed to the righteousness of God. Not the person who's able to do everything right, but the person who's committed to pursuing righteousness. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. It's the person who doesn't mess around with his life. It's the person who's serious about his walk with God. It's the person who's been saved by God's grace and knows it and now wants to devote his life to doing what is right. Before God. That's what I think James is talking about. 
Not the absolutely righteous, but the person who has been saved by God's grace and now has committed his ways to righteousness. When that person prays effectively and fervently, what does it avail? Just given a very generic, undefined term, much. Much means a lot. It means abundance. It means a whole lot of good can come out of the righteous man praying effectively and fervently. What a promise. What were we told earlier in this book on the same subject? You don't have, you lust and you covet and you fight and you war. You don't have because you don't ask. And when you do ask, you ask wrong. You ask to satisfy your own lusts. Those are not effective prayers. Those are not prayers from righteous people. But when our prayers are like this, we're praying for our brothers and sisters who suffer. We're praying and singing psalms in our hearts because we're rejoicing. We're praying for the sick because in all humility they've come and they've asked for the elders of the church to pray for them. I'm praying for my brothers and sisters who struggle with their trespasses because even though I know all of their trespasses are covered by Christ's blood and they've been forgiven, they're still struggling and they're beaten down and they want to walk in holiness and purity before God. They want to honor God with their lives. They know that everything is built on Christ's blood and righteousness. But now they want to pursue holiness in the fear of God. They want to be holy, for He is holy. And they struggle with trespasses. Galatians puts it like this. Bear one another's trespasses. Bear one another's burdens. And fulfill the law. What's the next two words? Of Christ. Not the law of Moses. Christ Himself fulfilled the law of Moses when He lived the perfect sinless life. Only Christ fulfills the law. The purpose of the law is to show me my sin. But when we bear one another's burdens, we fulfill a different law, the law of Christ, which is to love one another and care for one another and forgive one another and be patient with one another and pray for one another and support one another and build one another up in our most precious like faith. Fulfill a higher law. We exchanged a law that we could never fulfill for a law that we can because of He who is in us. You can never fulfill God's moral code, the law of Moses. But you certainly can fulfill the law of Christ by lovingly bearing the burdens of one another. The ones who are committed to that. That's what we should all be. And then we should be praying for one another. Praying for one another. Praying that we might be healed praying that we might be strong, praying that we might be bold, praying that we might have wisdom and comfort and strength to go through the hardships of life. That's what he says. In the midst of hardship and struggle, turn to God and be a person of prayer. The example given, I won't take the time to turn back to 1 Kings, but you can go to 1 Kings chapter 17, chapter 18. And read the story of Elijah. You know what happened, right? The way James said, Elijah was, was a man with a nature like ours. Because, you know, you can read about the prophets in the Old Testament and you think you're reading about Superman, right? I mean, certainly we read about Elijah. I mean, Elijah seems like he's just different. Some of the, you know, David, Samuel. You know, they're, just, they're just Paul, John the Baptist. There's just people that seem like they're different. You know, Elijah was one of those men. The way that whole thing went at Mount Carmel when he stood up and the prophets of Baal were there and they had that confrontation. I mean, I mean, I mean, who else? Who else? You know, so so we think he's like Superman. No, he's not. He's a man with a nature like ours. He's one of us. But what did he do? God, God told him what to do. He prayed. And the rain stopped. Three years. Then after that time goes by, he shows up. And there's this confrontation 
on the mountain. And the confrontation is that the prophets of Baal made an altar. Elijah, by himself, made an altar. And let's pray to our God. And let's see who's going to Let's see whose altar is going to burn up. So the prophets of Baal start with all their fake stuff. Start with all their idolatry. Start cutting themselves, everything else. Elijah stands there and mocks them and says, maybe your God went away for a while. Maybe he's on a journey. And anyway, you know, he's mocking them. And then, then it comes Elijah's turn. Elijah says, you know what? Soak my, soak my altar with water. Make it harder to burn. Then he calls on God. And fire comes from heaven, licks up the wood, the rocks, the water. (sighs) Elijah is a man with a nature like ours. That wasn't the end of it. Do you know what happened almost immediately after that? Somebody saw a cloud in the distance. Then it says the sky turned black. And then... Down came the first rain they had seen in Samaria for three years, over three years. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah is not shown to us to show you, you can't ever be that. Elijah is shown to us and we are told he had a nature just like me. What is that nature? Mortal, human, weak, sinful, in need of mercy, everything. He's like us. But he loved the righteousness of God and he prayed and he obeyed and he believed. How about you? What won't you pray about? When's the last time you sat in a room and listened to your brothers and sisters talk about their concerns that you might pray for them? When's the last time you showed up and shared something you're struggling with with a brother or a sister? When's the last time you called upon the elders of the church to pray for you when you were sick? When's the last time you viewed your church as what God designed it to be? A body. A body. A body, a body with hands and feet and toes and fingers and eyes. and Where when one part suffers, they all suffer. When's the last time you viewed it like that and reached out like that and made, and made, yourself, made yourself available to it like that? <laughs> Lastly, we're told... We should turn to God and simply be a person of our word. We're told, turn to God, be a person of prayer. And finally, we're told, turn others to God. Be one who turns other people to... Now look, we're all called to this. And here's what happens in these last couple of verses. Verse 19. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Here's what always happens when people talk about this verse. Half of the crowd argues and says, well, he's obviously talking to believers because you can't turn away from the truth unless you're a believer, right? But then the other half of the crowd argues, well, he must be talking to non-believers because... A believer, first of all, wouldn't walk away from the truth. And second of all, uh, a non-believer is the only person who needs to be saved because believers already are. And then we argue, and we argue some more, and then we argue until we feel good about ourselves, and then we go away completely missing what James is trying to say. Aforementioned technology and social media has only made it worse and more embarrassing. Context. People need to turn to God in suffering. 
I'm going to be real honest with you. People need to be turned to Jesus. Lost people need to be turned to Jesus. Saved people who wander need to be turned to Jesus. Saved people where everything is going well need to be directed and pointed and turned to Jesus. Everyone needs to be turned to God. If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Stop trying to figure out every single little detail and just realize what James is saying here is in the midst of hardship and trial, people need to be told, turn to God. Turn to Christ. Turn to Him. The weight and the burden of struggle and trial can cause someone to maybe want to turn away. The lore of this world and its pleasures may seem an easier path than the struggle of the Christian. That may make someone want to turn away. The struggle of feeling like you're alone and nobody cares, nobody prays, nobody listens, nobody really cares about what I'm going through anyway. That may cause someone to stray and to turn away. Brethren, listen to this. The person who turns the person back, that person is something special. The person you tell, you if anyone among you turn, wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know. You tell that one. May I paraphrase? You tell that one. We got something special here. You tell that one. We've got ourselves a real God lover here. You tell that one. We've got ourselves a real Christ follower here. Because this is what Jesus was doing all the time. Pointing people to God. He pointed His enemies to God. He pointed His persecutors to God. He pointed His disciples to God. He pointed strangers to God. He pointed widows to God. He pointed sick people to God. He pointed even Gentiles, Romans to God. He pointed Pontius Pilate to God. He did. Are you the king of the Jews? You rightly say that I am. You know? One day, you'll see the Son of Man standing in the power on high, or however that goes. You know, but no matter who he's standing in front of, he's pointing people to God. He talks about leaving the 99 and going after the one. Jesus does. And many other things that I could go on and on about. But know this. Know this. If a person in a church seems to be wandering from the faith, it is a high call and a sacred duty for the people of that church in all gentleness to try to turn them back. Won't always happen. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. If you know of a lost person who's walking through all kinds of stuff in their life, that person needs to be turned to God. Speak to them of Christ. As you go day by day through your life, be a little channel of His blessing. As you go day by day through your life, be an instrument in His hands that He uses to turn people to Himself. That's what we're called to do. Let Him know that He who turns a sinner from the error of His way, the error of His way being straying from the truth, right? He turns a sinner from the error of His way. He'll save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. I don't know about you. That sounds like a noble goal to me. To save a soul from death and to turn to cover a multitude of sins? Love does that. Love does that. That's what you might say he's saying here. Love as you've been loved and as you're called to love. Love. In hardship and trial, 
be a person of your word. Don't lash out in anger. Just let your yes be yes, your no be no. Turn to God and trust Him. In hardship and trial, be a person of prayer. Suffering, pray. Happy, sing psalms. Sick, call on the elders of the church. Listen to each other's struggles with trespasses and sins and forgive each other and pray for one another. Remember Elijah. Remember the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And thirdly, in hardship and trial, be a person who God uses to turn people back to Himself. Be spiritual. Be loving. Be Christ-like in all things. Jesus, the Son of God, died for our sins. When He died on the cross, He took the penalty that I owed for my sin. I could never wash it away myself. Jesus loved me so much that when He died, there was the judgment for my sin being nailed to the cross with Him. They buried Him in a grave, and on the third day He rose from the dead. He ascended back to heaven. He's there right now. And now He has words for the people of this world. It starts with turning to Him. You need His salvation. Turn to Christ in faith. And then as you walk day by day, you go through hardship and trial, turn to Christ and find His great ability and resources there to help you go through them in a way that glorifies Him and turn others to Him as well. You need Christ and everyone around you needs Him too. And the good news is, He's there. Believe Him. Trust Him. Jed, Fanny, come on, lead us in the last hymn.